0: family, It is an honor to be with you this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here.
1: My name is Bethany and I'm the women's pastor here.
0: And we're excited to be with you as we finished our series in Romans last week. And we jump back over to the Old Testament and begin our series in the book of Habakkuk. Now, I know for some of you, you're thinking, now where in the Bible is the book of Habakkuk? And friends, honestly, I think you could spend your entire life growing up in the church and never hear a full sermon series on the book of Habakkuk. But Habakkuk is a book, it's one of a, a group of smaller books that are at the end of the Old Testament that are referred to as the minor prophets. Now it's important to clarify, minor prophet doesn't mean that they're less of a prophet or it's minor league prophet or it's a J, uh, Habakkuk is a JV prophet. His words are just as authoritative. Minor just simply means that his book is short. And the book of Habakkuk actually just has three chapters and we're gonna spend the next four weeks in the book of Habakkuk. But it's also important to realize that we don't have a ton of biographical information about the story of Habakkuk, his personal information. In fact, scholars are not actually certain how to even say his name or pronounce his name. It's an Akkadian loan term, which means it's a group of Semitic words that the Hebrews borrowed. So here's the good news. If during our series you mispronounce the name Habakkuk, you actually might not be getting it wrong. You might be getting it right.
1: So can I say like Habakkuk?
0: That could be right. There you go. Perfect. But friends, we're we're thrilled to be with you. And in this time, all this chaos and unknown going on around us, We're going to do what we always should do. We're going to open God's word and we're convinced that there is no better place for us to be than in the book of Habakkuk this morning and unpacking uh, God's word there. So with that said, friends, many of you know that we have six children, three of which, our older three, are all going to be teenagers as of today. Happy birthday, Abraham. Happy birthday, Abe. And we have three younger children. And every Sunday, I take our younger children out on something we call Sunday Fun Day. And Sunday Fun Day right now just essentially means that we load up in our 12 passenger van. I do with the three younger kids. We go to a restaurant, go through the drive through, and then we sit and we eat a meal together. And I primarily do Sunday Fun Day just to get some time for me to connect alone with the kids. But I also do it to give their mom some time alone without the kids. I love
1: Sunday Fundays.
0: <laughs> but friends, I have to prep for Sunday Funday. Like I'm prepping for an exam. Because from the minute that we back out of the driveway to the minute we pull in, my kids are like all other kids. And they love to pepper me with the question, Why? And so I thought, oh, I'll write down a few of the why questions that I've heard from them over the last couple of weeks. And if you want to try to answer them, I'm going to share them with you. If you want to try to answer them and play along at home, I'd love to see you give it a shot. So here's one of the questions I, I got this week. Dad, why does the red light mean stop and the green light means go? Dad, and this is a profound question. Dad, why are chicken nuggets made of chicken? Have you ever thought of it? Dad, why did God not make unicorns? And, friends, some of the questions can be quite humbling for me. Dad, why is some of your hair turning white? <laughs> and this one made me feel really good about myself this week. Dad, why do you run so slow when you exercise? But friends, probably the the best question I got this last week, and I think it comes from the fact that after we get to about 100 why questions, I just start going, I don't know, buddy. But probably the best question I got is, Dad, why does mom know so much more stuff than you? And I know some of you are also asking that question. (laughs) But kids, my kids, they're no different than any other kids. They love to ask the question, why? But have you noticed something? As adults— We don't ask why very often, except, and this is where we're going to make a turn, except when we encounter suffering and pain and evil and injustice in this world. It's at that point then we start crying out and asking God, why? And, friends, one of the things I love about God's Word is it doesn't avoid these topics, it doesn't uh, excuse away the issue of evil or deny that it exists. God's word scripture addresses the subject of suffering and evil head on in a real and raw and authentic way. And friends, that's what we see here in the book of Habakkuk. As Habakkuk encounters evil and suffering in his own life and he's crying out to God, why? And so friends, we get to see in the book of Habakkuk this extraordinary conversation between the prophet and God. And rather than getting these trite, easy, glossed over answers about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering in our world, the book of Habakkuk and God's word instead gives us a power, an assurance of God's power and his promises, an assurance of God's justice and a powerful call to trust. But with that said, friends, I want to give as we begin our series in the book of Habakkuk, a bit of historical context to the book. First, the, the prophet Habakkuk, he was a contemporary of Zephaniah and the prophet Jeremiah. And if you remember our series this last summer in the book of Daniel, all that the prophet Habakkuk foretells in this book is what played out in the book of Daniel. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context. And friends, if you remember that God's people broke up into two nations, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the Southern Kingdom was called Judah. And it was the Southern Kingdom of Judah that Habakkuk was charged by God to reform. And friends, reform was needed. If you remember originally, God's people were ruled by God. It was a theocracy. They had no human king. God directly ruled them. But as time went on, they looked around at the other kingdoms and they said, God, we want a king like the other kingdoms. We want a human king that we can trust in to protect us. And that wasn't God's desire for them. But after enough of we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, God said, okay, even though that's not what I desire, I'll give you what you desire. I'll turn you you over to your own will. And friends, what does that mean when God says, I'll give you what you want, but it's not what God desires for us? What does that mean? It's not good. Ultimately, it's judgment. And so we see in the history of Judah, this long string of inept or evil kings. It's just on and on and on and on. There are, in fact, there are very few uh, kings that had, were worth their salt at all. They were decent at all. David was one. Asa was another. But we have this long string of kings. But I want to fast forward history and I want to get to King Manasseh. King Manasseh was an evil king. And then he died and he was replaced by his son, Amon, who outdid his father at being evil. And then Amon died. And friends, this is how bad things got. Amon was replaced by his eight-year-old son, Josiah. Now friends, I have an eight-year-old son. He is not ready to be king of anything, okay? I know where his mind is at. In fact, I can probably guess what his first decree would be. And if you watched our last sermon, you could probably guess too. A tray of brownies for every meal. But friends, Josiah wasn't a typical eight-year-old. He was wise and he was a good king. And eight years later, about the time he could get his driver's license, Josiah had a servant bring him a scroll that was found in the temple that they had abandoned. And Josiah opened that scroll as a young king, probably with his court all around him and began to read that scroll. And likely that scroll was the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. And as Josiah read the Pentateuch, as he read God's law, he looked at it and he looked around at his people at Judah and he thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. And friends, it was not good in Judah. The people were sacrificing their children to the false god, Moloch. But probably most telling actually was the fact that they had to accidentally find God's law. It reveals that they had abandoned God's house. They were no longer serving, or worshiping, or giving, or obeying God's law at all. So Josiah, being a man after who pursued God, and like David, a man after God's own heart, he's like, "We've got to reform this. We've got to change our culture." So he called the people to repentance, and he changed Judah. And in that moment, there was all this optimism: "We're back on the right track." And then one of the superpowers in the world at that time, Egypt, attacked. And Josiah, being a courageous man of God, not being one of those kings that sits back in the back on this little loft thing and watching his troops fight, but being a man of the people, stepped into the infantry and began to fight. And Josiah was killed and he died. And with him, all that optimism, all that excitement, all that and friends, I think this weekend, today, right now, it's, there's a message in there for us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in politics and we shouldn't uh, profess our faith in, in, in the public square or vote or do our civic duty. But before we get too amped up about politics, we, re- we need to remember our ultimate hope is not in politics at all. There is only one who is worthy of us setting our ultimate hope on. And he is on the throne and he was on the throne yesterday, today, and he will be forever And his name is Jesus. So friends, after Josiah died, he was replaced by the King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was not a winner at all. And soon after that, he was replaced by King Jehoiakim. And friends, Jehoiakim was an evil, evil dude. Yet it wasn't that long before that they remembered King Josiah and God's law and the people started asking, are we living correctly? Is what we're doing okay? But almost as if on cue, the false prophets rolled in. Dudes who would probably have TV ministries nowadays to tell the people, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry that you're not obeying God's law. Don't worry that your life is all just about you. You're God's people, you're good. You're living your best life now. And friends, it was into that situation that God put our guy Habakkuk, his prophet, to bring reform. And friends, this shouldn't surprise us at all. God always sends his prophet. He always sends his servants into difficult and challenging circumstances. He always does. So friends, you might not be a prophet, You might not be the child of a prophet. You might not even work for a nonprofit, but God is calling you as his people into difficult family situations, difficult and challenging work situations. And I can tell you right now, he's 100% calling you into a challenging situation in a lost and broken and hurting city. So friends, it's with that, we wanna turn now with that context in mind and open our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. So I'll let you open your Bibles and then let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we come mindful of this. That your words that we're going to read aloud are going to be the most profitable thing we hear today. So open our ears to hear as always. And prepare our hearts to receive everything you desire to teach us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice goes, never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize, the, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they give captives. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own is their whose might their own might is their god are you not from everlasting o oh, my lord god my holy one we shall not die o oh, lord you have ordained them as judgment and you o oh rock have established them for reproof
1: i'm amazed at just how applicable and relevant that passage is for us this morning Sound familiar? Uh, Violence, evil, suffering, injustice. And this morning, we want to look closely at Habakkuk's response to what he saw around him, to the suffering and the injustice. And then we're going to look at God's response, and then finally, how we should respond. So look with me at verse 2 and 3 again. It says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. And Habakkuk is quite bold and honest with God as he brings his complaints to him. Why are you silent? Why have you abandoned us in the midst of all that is wrong? Why are you doing nothing or sitting idly, as verse 3 says? And why do you let this evil and injustice reign throughout our nation? The destruction and violence wasn't just something for Habakkuk that was just theoretical. He was living among it, and it was personal. And we can see that in verse 3 when he says this to God, Why do you make me see iniquity? And it's as if he's holding God responsible. I know, God, that you have the power to stop this. And because you're not, you're responsible for this. When have you cried out to God like that? When have you cried, why, God? Why are you silent? Why are you absent? Why are you allowing this pain and injustice? And many of you are asking why, right now. And if you're not asking why right now, you've asked why before. And if you're not asking why, you will at some point. Why this suffering, God? Why this diagnosis? Why this loss? Why this hard marriage? Why this loneliness? Why this pandemic? Right? How long, oh Lord? And as we look at the suffering and the injustice around us in our nation and in our world, Some of us are also asking, why this racial injustice and inequality? Why this violence and destruction? Why do we kill one million unborn babies every year in our country alone? Why are there 8,000 kids in foster care in our state alone who have been through trauma, abuse, neglect? Why are we the epicenter for human trafficking? You see, we devalue human life, life made in God's image similar to what we see in Babylon. And we ask, where are you God? Why are you silent? And Habakkuk saw the destruction and violence around him too, and he wondered why God wasn't intervening. Why wasn't he fixing it? And now we're going to get to God's response in verses 5 through 11 in just a minute, but I want to just jump down to verse 12, and we see Habakkuk's second complaint to God, and this is what he says in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Essentially, are you not infinite? And this is a rhetorical question, so Habakkuk wasn't really looking for an answer, he was making a point with God. He's saying, hey, you're supposed to be this great, everlasting God. What's, what's happening? Although Habakkuk is challenging God, notice who he's talking to about it. He isn't calling a friend to complain or posting something on social media or uh, just muttering and complaining to himself, right? Notice how he's dealing with it. He's He's praying about it. <laughs> he's talking to God about it. He's coming to his holy one, or later it says his rock. And in the midst of complaining, he, res- he refers to God as these things, my holy one, my rock. It's as if he's saying, I'm upset with you, God, not because I don't believe that you're good and infinite and sovereign, but I know you are. And this doesn't make any sense to me. So on one hand, Habakkuk is challenging God, but on the other hand, he's stating who God is and that he believes that is true. And there's no hint of Habakkuk ever thinking of walking away. He's wrestling faithfully, but he's doing it with God. He's coming to him. Tim Keller calls this unconditional, faithful wrestling. And I love uh, how we don't see God rebuking him for that. Habakkuk feels completely safe and secure in his relationship with God. And I just, I love how we just see that intimacy and how God has preserved this dialogue for us in black and white right here in his word so that we can see this and we can learn from it. And we see this unconditional faithful wrestling throughout scripture. We see it in the life of Jacob. We see it in Jeremiah. We definitely see it in the book of Job. And then later in the New Testament, we even see it with our Savior. We see it with Jesus when he's in the garden and he's crying out to God and he's saying, Why? Is there any other way? Take this cup from me. God clearly can handle our wrestling, we can bring him our hurt. We can bring him our doubt. We can bring him our grief. We can complain. And the reason this is, is because God remains your God and my God because of his grace, his mercy, his perfect love. Not because we earn it in some way or we have all the right answers or we perform for him. And Habakkuk feels this freedom to just wrestle with these questions, he knows it is true that it is about God and his grace and his mercy and his love. A dear friend of ours wrote um, a book, Steve Tracy, called Mending the Soul. And many of you have been through that um, healing ministry here at our church. It's for individuals who have experienced abuse and trauma in their life. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful ministry. Um, I've been through it. Paul's been through it. But here's what Steve wrote in Mending the Soul about wrestling with God. I love it. He says, We must keep wrestling with God, refusing to be content with a shallow relationship. This doesn't mean, of course, that a person can expect to wrestle with God until God answers all questions and solves all problems to his or her complete satisfaction. It simply doesn't work that way. The Lord of the universe does not answer to his creation. Nor could we comprehend many of the answers if he were to give them to us. But he is a God who desires to be pursued and who desires an intimate relationship with each one of us. And that is what Habakkuk had with our God. And next, in verses 5 through 11, we see God's response. So in verse 5, God says, I am doing something that you aren't going to believe or understand. So Habakkuk is saying, please tell me what you're doing. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And God's like, okay, I'll tell you, but you're not going to understand. And God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, the most ruthless people, and they are going to destroy your nation. And Habakkuk was probably like, yeah, you're right. I don't understand. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) In fact, when I read this the first time, I was thinking, did I read that right? Because here, Habakkuk is crying out, like, why all this evil and injustice? You're a good, all-powerful God, like, put an end to it. And then God responds to him saying, you aren't going to understand, but I am at work in this pain, and I'm about to send more violence and injustice. And it just doesn't make any sense. Didn't he promise to bring salvation out of Israel? Now, we can see something today that Habakkuk couldn't see. So when the ruthless Babylonians attacked Judah, the Jews were taken into exile. And they were spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, and they established synagogues. And so in these synagogues, there were Jews, but there were also Gentiles who were seeking God and who had become God-fearers and who had come to know him. And in those synagogues, um, they worshipped there. And so then like 600 years later, When Jesus brought salvation out of violence, the gospel message began to spread. And we see this in the book of Acts. And the most receptive people in the entire world to the gospel message were those Gentiles who were spread out throughout the entire Roman Empire. They were the people who were most instrumental in taking the gospel message to the entire world. Now, do you think Habakkuk could have understood that or seen that? Of course not. And we often look at our own pain and suffering in our lives and the things around us, and we want to know why. But we often can't. And even if God were to tell us, we likely wouldn't understand, like Habakkuk. And it's like with our kids (laughs) with seatbelts. So for like, Two to three years, our little ones wouldn't keep their seatbelts on in the car. Like, we tried everything. Holding (laughs) up cookies for them if they would just keep it on until we would get to the location. But nothing seemed to work. And I would say things to them like, if you keep taking your seatbelt off and running around the car or wrestling in the back seat, if we get in a car accident, you are going to die. (gasps) So one day I said, nothing was working. I said to Caleb, Caleb, keep your seatbelt on or you are going to fly out of this car. And he paused for a moment, and he said, like Superman? And at that point, I thought, okay, they're clearly not getting this big picture of death and car accidents and all of that. So finally, I just said to him, son, I know you don't understand. I love you, and I just need you to trust me. And it's the same with God. You often won't understand the why behind what he's doing, but he assures you throughout scripture of his promises, that he uses all things in our lives for our good and his glory. And he just says, I love you. Will you trust me? And yet we demand that what God does has to make sense to us. About uh, four years ago, we had... Um, our three biological kids, and we had four little kids under the age of three in our house. And we had a little tiny house, and it was <laughs> crazy. It was chaotic. All of them were in diapers and all of that. One of them we'd already adopted. The other three were still in foster care, but were going up for adoption. And we'd raised them most of their lives. And one of the DHS workers came to our house. I still remember where we were all sitting and said, we know you love these kids. But we've made an exception for you to foster them. And there's just no way we're going to get approved for you to adopt all of them. You're going to need to choose. And it was brutal. <laughs> Most mornings I didn't want to get out of bed because I thought this just feels like a bad dream. Every time one of them called me mommy, I just felt like, oh, I just want to die. So um, after a few weeks of just wrestling and it just felt like God was silent and we kept saying, why God, why would you allow these precious little children to come into our lives for us to raise them and then tell us, you have to choose and say goodbye. So I sent out an email to a bunch of our friends, just asking them to pray. I felt like even in that season, I couldn't pray. I mean, I just just felt so crazy. (laughs) It was really, yeah. And so I sent out this email, and none of them were foster parents or adoptive parents at the time, but I received a response back from a friend saying that she and her husband had been out on a date that night, and as they prayed, they felt like God was calling them to something more, and that it might be foster care and adoption. And so she said they already had a relationship with two of our kids who were siblings, and she said, we'll take them, and we'll adopt them. And it's been beautiful. (laughs) And sometimes God graciously allows us to see the beautiful things that he is doing in the midst of the pain. And it's out of his grace and his faithfulness sometimes we get to see it. But most of the time, and we've had plenty of times where we don't see it. We don't see the big picture. We don't understand his purposes in the pain. And the question is, will we still trust him? Will you still trust him when you don't understand what he is doing?
0: So friends, our final question is, is how do we respond to this? How do we respond? And I love God's word. It's incredible. So if you have your Bibles with me, would you turn back to the New Testament to Acts chapter 13, and we're gonna be in verses 38 through 41. And just to set it up, The Apostle Paul is here. He's evangelizing. He's sharing the gospel. And then he says this. It's incredible. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded, and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Sound familiar, friends? Habakkuk chapter one, verse five, God's response to Habakkuk. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you about it. Friends, the Apostle Paul is essentially saying that 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 promise of God, that I'm doing this work, that that's about Jesus. Now, I know some of you are saying, no, 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 that's about the Babylonians. Yes, but I love how D.A. Carson summarizes it. He says that the Apostle Paul is saying that that principle that God brings salvation out of judgment, that he brings redemption out of evil, that he brings justice out of injustice, that he brings adoption out of abuse, that he brings mercy out of cruelty, and that he brings light out of darkness, finds its ultimate expression in Jesus on the cross. And so friends, when Jesus is on the cross, taking the judgment for sins he did not commit, my sins, your sins, he's bringing salvation out of judgment. And yet, I can almost guarantee people were looking at that cro- at the cross in that moment, watching him suffer and asking, what is that all about? What could God bring out of that? And yet all the while, God is working the ultimate good, salvation out of the ultimate evil. So what does this mean for us? How should we respond? How should we respond when we're in that moment where we're confronted with suffering and evil and injustice and pain in our own lives? And when that thought comes into our minds, what in the world could God be doing with this? How could he work any good out of this? How should we respond? Friends, remember the cross and remember that our God is working. Now friends, if you remember the cross as well, when Jesus is on the cross, there's a moment when he cries out to his father, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, there was no response. In that moment, Jesus was abandoned. But here's the deal friend, in that moment he was abandoned so you and I will never be abandoned. Our God is not some far off God that doesn't know anything about suffering and evil. He entered into suffering and evil on the cross. And so when we are tempted in these moments of suffering and injustice to wonder, has God abandoned me? How should we respond? Look to the cross and remember our God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Friends, I wanna finish with this. And I'd love to say that I could end it better, but I can't. I'm gonna end with the words of Tim Keller and this is his summary of what Jesus would say to us as his children or what he says to us as his children in the face of suffering, evil and injustice and pain. Listen closely. When you look at my resurrection, you realize that dark times can come upon a person. That does not mean that God has abandoned you. Dark times can happen to people who don't deserve it. That is what happened to me. But I want you to know there is a reason for everything God is doing. And someday you'll know what it is. But until then, trust me. We love you, Cedar Mill family.